Hello everyone who's um, joining us. Um, uh, my name is Amy and my pronouns are she and her. I'm a, a white woman and I have um, blonde short hair and my background um, is a shelf and some plants and some terrible curtains. Um, thank you so much for joining us um, at this workshop today. The workshop is delivered and curated um, by Jules and Sam from Alternative Fictions. I'm very much just um, here to introduce and to set up the kind of um, safety and make sure everyone's okay using Zoom and those kind of things. And then I'm going to hand over. Um, I'm just going to uh, present my screen there. So as you're all coming in, and um, what I'll do in a minute is uh, I will explain some of the kind of uh, parts of how the event's going to work and how you can communicate with us. Um, uh, but before I do that, I'm just going to quickly um, say a little bit about Newington Green Meeting House, my role and, uh, and what I do there. Um, just before I do that, if live transcription hasn't come up automatically for you, there's a button if you hover over the screen um, and you should um, see a link that says um, live transcript or it might say closed captions. Um, if you, if you uh, press that button, then you should be able to get uh, a transcript of what I'm saying although it's not going to be 100% accurate, but I'm going to explain what we're doing in terms of uh, accessibility in a moment. So my name is Amy. I'm the programme manager at Newington Green Meeting House. And the Meeting House is one of the buildings um, that is owned and managed and is home to New Unity, which is uh, the UK's only non-religious church. Um, and um, I, my job is to share the radical histories of this building and so we do lots of programs about Mary Wollstonecraft who I suppose is one of our most famous faces, the kind of mother of Western feminism, but we um, do lots of events that use our radical history as a way to try and mobilise social action and social justice today. Um, and now I'm just going to run through a bit of security and accessibility. Um, so we're going to be recording this event. If you want to take part in the event, but you don't want to be shown in the recording, that's absolutely fine. Um, to rename, you just um, hover over the picture of yourself. You'll get a button which has three dots on it. And then you have the ability to rename yourself. So you could just put anonymous or whatever you'd like. And you can turn your camera off. Um, we're actually asking for the majority of this event that you turn your camera off and you mute yourself. And um, we're gonna be hearing from Sam Jules and we're gonna be hearing from the speakers. Um, and there will be chance if you would like to speak yourself, but the majority of the time we're going to be communicating via the chat. And that's the chat there that you should get. Um, and I'm gonna be reiterating all this in text for you so you don't have to remember it. Um, so we're going to be communicating via the chat function. If you have any problems with Zoom, just pop a message in there and um, it's my job to try and help you throughout the event. As I mentioned, um, we have the live transcription. Um, it's 
going to have some issues there's some words that it doesn't tend to pick up and especially names but we are going to be sending out an edited transcript of the event afterwards um, so we will send you that we'll also pop an email and we will be asking for feedback if you have any feedback um, about anything uh, but especially including accessibility please do let us know it's also a prerequisite of our funding because we are national lottery heritage um, funded um, and they support um, all our events so it'd be great to get feedback that way. Um, we are advising you that you use the speaker view function and then I'm going to spotlight speakers, um, not me but everyone else um, and um, I just lastly that uh, we're really asking for mutual respect and that everyone um, joins this event with an open mind and leaves preconceptions at the door. Um, right, that's enough from me. Um, but like I said, I'm going to be in the chat if anyone needs anything. And I'm now going to hand over to Jules and Sam. Thank you. So, hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's webinar, Nothing About Us Without Us, which is going to be a deep dive into the topic of inclusion and exclusion. I'm Jules. My pronouns are she and her. I am a Filipino Scottish filmmaker based in Berlin. I'm in here with my lovely bookshelf behind me. Uh, and I'm Sam. My pronouns are also she and her. Uh, and I'm a mixed black and white uh, woman uh, wearing a large grey jumper with a white background. I've got a plant as well in the corner popping into frame. So a little bit about us. We're Alternative Fictions and we're a collective of documentary filmmakers and visual anthropologists. Uh, we work across be uh, various media forms and we also curate events and workshops like this one on themes that cover topics such as power dynamics, representation, media portrayals and just other topics that affect our day-to-day -day lives. Um, so some of our aims as a collective is to create spaces that support and highlight voices and narratives that have either gone unlistened to as well as voices that have been misrepresented by media portrayals and widespread bigotry, and also those who have been caught at the intersections of multiple oppressive structures in our societies. So a lot of our work and with the events that we create, curate, our aim is to create safe spaces for respectful and frank conversations and discussions that present an opportunity to learn from each other's experiences. Uh, a big thing for us as well is highlighting that in order for this to work, mutual respect is key. Um, and we invite people to leave their preconceptions at the door and come to these discussions with open minds. Yeah, so this is the final workshop um, that's part of a, it's been a three-part series on activism that we have done in partnership with the Newington Green Meeting House. Um, for us as a collective, the topic of inclusivity is something that's really important to us. And it's something we've strive to engage on in discussions and as well in our practice in general like delivering workshops but also as filmmakers um, as people working in the media something we counter quite frequently um, in documentary and in other forms of media is that there's a desire to tell and hear narratives of oppressions and hardships but also frequently that people are spoken about rather than telling their own stories or being spoken with. Um, and this is actually one of the reasons we started Alternative Fictions, um, because we wanted to explore different ways of, um, of like telling these stories of 
um, highlighting, sharing people's narratives, and also disrupting the power structures that exist within media and beyond the media, actually. Um, and to us, one of the key aspects of this is to advocate for meaningful inclusion, not only in front of the camera, but also behind the camera and in wider decision-making roles in our everyday lives. So to discuss these topics, we've invited three brilliant guests uh, whose work engages with these topics surrounding inclusion and exclusion in various different situations. So I would love for them to introduce themselves. So maybe first, uh, Priyanka. Hi, everyone. Um, so my name's Priyanka. I'm British Indian and currently I'm in a room with bookshelves behind me. Um, and I am the, I'm a manager's assistant at Casarotto Ramsey, as well as their diversity and inclusions coordinator, which is um, very much part of my freelance job as well, something that I'm passionate about and have been working on for quite some time. And alongside that, I have been working as development producer, um, currently in pre-production on a short film which explores mental health um, through the eyes of a young carer as well as in post-production on another short which is looking at disability and how London isn't accessible for everyone. Okay, thank you Priyanka. Um, next, Tarek. Hello, uh, my name is Tarek Almutuakil. Um, oh, I'm just... I've got, I've got a thing on the screen that I need to press. Do I need to press later? I'm going to press unmute myself, I've already, although I'm already unmuted. Hello, I'll start again. Hi, I am Tarek Elmutuakil. Um, I'm an artist, a community organiser and artistic director of Marble Productions, which is a performing arts uh, charity now um, that um, focuses on intersectional queer perspectives. Um, my main um, artistic work is Brownton Abbey. Brownton Abbey is an Afrofuturistic space church themed performance party that celebrates, centers and elevates disabled queer people of color. That's me. Oh, oh, my back, let me do a description. Uh, I'm a mixed uh, African European uh, person, light brown skin, shaved head, well, partly shaved, partly receding hairline. Uh, I've got a, um, a mauve t-shirt and a black um, zip-up hoodie, and I'm in a room with nice purpley pinky lights and some twinkly lights behind me with a few plants and things. It's very cosy looking. And lots of cushions. Thank you, Tarek. And last but not least, uh, Josh, love you for you to introduce yourself. Hi everybody, um, my name's Josh and my pronouns are he, him. Uh, I am currently in a room, um, it's a white room, I've just moved in actually, so there's not much on the walls yet. Um, and uh, a cupboard behind me with some uh, succulents there. Um, skincare that I forgot to put away at a shot. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, and I'm a trainer. Um, I am a trainer, I'm a consultant and a facilitator. Um, uh, specifically in diversity and, and inclusion. And I work with organisations um, across lots of different sectors on how to um, engage um, staff, uh, service users uh, and, and audiences. 
um, and I'm also a trustee of Stonewall Housing, which is a homeless LGBT charity. Um, so yeah, that, that is a, a, a little bit about me. Okay, thank you all so much. Um, so we're just going to dive straight in. Um, we'd love to start with a question, um, just kind of ask you all to kind of share some thoughts on what does inclusion mean for you and what is an inclusive practice? Um, feel free for any of you to join in, um, jump in. Yeah, go for it. I'll jump in first. Oh, go, okay, on. go on. Go oh, 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 no, oh. on. Okay, I will. I will. Um, so, um, personally, I'm. I really like playing with things that are radically inclusive and radically exclusive. Uh, so I often have those two uh, thoughts in my mind when I'm creating something. Sometimes I want to make something radically inclusive. If something is radically inclusive, I use the word uh, radical in in its. Um, meaning of returning to the root of an issue so how do you get to the what what are the issues what how to make something radically inclusive is looking at the roots of of of, in, of, of inclusion or perhaps the roots of exclusion actually um and working on those roots to to flip them around so that um so that inclusion becomes an actual um reality um i'm for me inclusion is um, makes most sense when it's led by the people who are being seeked to be included. Um, uh, so, for example, if there's something, and there's also I think the acknowledgement that not everything, not everybody, maybe can always be included in in, in something. The, the idea that something is for everybody, I'm not always, and I don't know how much I'm down with that as an idea. As a, I don't, I think maybe that's not as as realistic as we like to imagine. Um, that something is for everybody. For example, do we want racists at our events? For example, when we say everybody, do we want homophobes? Do we want people who are ableist at our event? Probably not. So there are people that we may want to exclude. Um, radical in radical exclusion also is something that I'm interested in. Um, I run, for example, a community group for queer people of colour only. Um, you need to, so I, it's, there's no white people allowed in that group, for example. Um, and I see that as an important part of the work that I do. Brownton Abbey is radically inclusive. It, it has, it, it, it centres, celebrates and elevates disabled queer people of colour. So they're the people who are up on stage, having paid work, being centred. Um, white people, of course, are, are welcome to come to the event, but they won't be on stage, for example. Um, yeah, that's that's my answer to uh, what is what does inclusion mean? Hey, um, Priyanka, Josh, do you want to add your thoughts? I think that's a really interesting um, perspective, and I I, I am in uh, in agreement. I think in terms of when you are curating spaces where people are able to be comfortable to express themselves effectively, then sometimes that means actually developing something that will exclude exclude others uh, for me inclusion is about creating a sense of belonging in some way um, and but also understanding when we talk about inclusion it isn't really just about like if just as you mentioned before like if we are seeking to challenge inequality or inequity uh, then actually in some cases that will lead to discomfort and actually that might 
make people feel excluded. Um, and so I think we really do have to kind of reflect on what are we trying to achieve and what do we mean and how are we defining inclusion? Because I think sometimes inclusion can be um, confused for comfort. And I think that sometimes to create a space that feels fair for marginalized groups, that means that there has to be some uncomfortable conversations. There has to be um, some challenge and some personal reflection. Um, I also think that people think about inclusion, I think it's as, as a term, like I think it, it's quite binary, people think of it, like you are or you aren't, or it is or it isn't. And I think that actually rather than, any, you know, working with organisations of lots of different types, they will talk about being inclusive. And I think realistically inclusion is the choices that we make in each in, in each situation that we are in. We either choose to bring people in or to not, or to reflect on their needs or to ignore them. And so I think as individuals, we need to think about inclusion less as a, 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 as a kind of badge or something that you are and more as a practice and something that you kind of consistently have to be thinking about and working on. I agree with what Josh, to what Josh is saying. I think it's, I think the term is so complex and it isn't straightforward. And for me, inclusion is the fact that you, for example, opportunities aren't closed because, you know, you come from a certain background or because of who you are. It's about being able to have a sense of, yeah, like you say, belonging, but also the fact that you don't feel like you're restricted by anything. Um, but I do agree that I think, particularly, so for example, I work in the film and TV industry, and I think a lot of the time, because it, the term comes up, people just assume that it's one thing, and we, you can do a tick box list, so you're like, okay, we're going to do step one, step two, step three, and we're done. Whereas I think it's much more complicated, and actually, it's an ongoing discussion, and you have to put together lots of pieces of a puzzle to actually branch out. Yeah, so just kicking off with some pretty um, interesting, quite necessary um, ideas about what inclusion is and actually how it's not quite as simple a phrase as people might think it is. Um, and we're going to loop back into some of these discussions on things like radical exclusion a bit later. Um, but for now, um, I'd like to ask Priyanka, um, so you have experience engaging with programs that work towards improving accessibility and diversity within the creative industries. And we'd love to hear a bit about your experiences as well as your thoughts on these um, types of structures. So for me, I've always been on the fence when it comes to these kind of opportunities. I, so I was fortunate that I managed to get through an organization which gave me a footing into the film and TV industry and I was part of an organization that essentially what they do is they give BAME uh, people a chance to get into the arts which is very restrictive already in terms of representation um, and my personal experience initially was very good because I'd finally got into the industry that I'd wanted to work in but I think you were there for me personally I was then put into a box for a very long time and people just assumed that because I'd come through an organization that I wasn't 
I suppose I felt like I wasn't deserving of other opportunities. Um, and so when other opportunities were similar to this organization came through, they were like, oh, you should apply to this. Or have you thought about this? And I was like, but I've done that. Why do I need to continue doing that? Surely I've shown in six months that I'm very good at what I'm doing. Um, but then I can see the benefits of it. And I do understand that for some people, it does help them, particularly if they've been trying to break into the industry that they want to get into for a very, very long time. Um, but at the same time, I also find that what it is, is you don't want to tick box. And it's going to be very, like, I used to find it very hard. I was like, am I being given a job because I'm good at what I do? Or have I been given a job because I'm Indian? I have a disability and I'm a female. And so they can just put that on their cards and go, we met the diversity requirements. Have Here's Priyanka. And I think for me, it's getting over that hurdle. And it's still, I'm, it's still, I'm, I'm still learning from that. Um, and I don't think it's easy. I think it's one of those discussions that has to be constantly had and the ideas have to be developed. And you have to also reassure people that actually it's not just about ticking boxes because talent is as equally important. Yeah. And so if you're sorry. Sorry. Uh Josh Tarek, I just wondered if you have anything that Priyanka's just said that you'd want to respond to from that. I I made what Priyanka said about that question about when you feel it's about feeling like have I been given this job because I tick a a, a few boxes with my identity. Um I think it's a real um important thing that so a lot of people in whatever industry um will find that they experience um imposter syndrome but actually and then you're told that if you've got imposter syndrome you know just get over it but actually if you are a marginalized person in an industry um it's likely that you are an imposter in some way because you're kind of like repeatedly not expected to be there um and so so as much as I've been told to kind of get over imposter syndrome, I actually, I'm like, well, no, I'm not really supposed to be in this, but in, in, I mean, I may be supposed to, but the perception is that I'm not supposed to be. Um, the way that I've sort of helped combat that feeling of um, that I might have been picked for a, a job because of um, my um, parts of my identity, I like to recognize that those parts of my identity have given me specific lived experience that are actually in its own way qualification. Um, so I, 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 it may not be an actual certificate, but I know that my experience as, uh, you know, my, my own unique experience coming into the arts, finding my own way into the arts um, as a disabled queer person of colour um, and amongst a bunch of other things has given me, that, that, that route has given me particular experience and I have plenty to bring to the table that someone who's had a very normal or kind of standard route won't have. And so, um, there's something of recognizing that even if there is a perception that you, even if there is questions about whether you got a job because of parts of your identity, that those things are really, um, they do mean something. They are, they're not, they're not just, uh, they're not actually faults of yours. They're actually, um, they're, they're part of your skill set in many ways. Mm. That's how I like to think of it anyway. No, and I think that's really true. And I think it's also really important for others to recognize that because once you diversify the room, you're going to bring in different voices and different experiences. And that's going to connect you to stories and other ideas that actually 
you might not have thought of. And I think it's kind of having those discussions, encouraging people to continue to do that. And I'm hoping that, you know, particularly in film and TV, that those steps have started. And I hope that they continue to do those things because it is, like you said, feeling like you belong and not that, you know, you've got imposter syndrome and you're, it's wrong for you to be there because it's not, it's totally not. It's just how the industry has moved forward and how you've got in. Mm. I I do sometimes think as well as kind of like we live in a kind of a, a myth of meritocracy you know people will often kind of throw things out like you know at the end of the day we just want the best person we're just you know we're really looking for the for the, for the most talented person and uh, and I often have to kind of question what has been the process been to find that what, what has defined this like what are the the, the touch points in which we are looking for, whether it's this cultural fit that's thrown around or, you know, the implicit trust that we put in somebody's skill set without testing it during the recruitment process. And, you know, I think if you look just even like any of across any, you know, there was a piece of research just that came out this week saying that in the FTSE 100, there wasn't, uh, um, you know, a single black person in the top three jobs of any of the organizations at one point there was more you know um there was more chief executives called david than there were women in the FTSE 250 like it's ridiculous to think that actually there isn't a better woman than all of these davids statistically and yet we have to kind of buy into this idea of, of meritocracy and so you know i often don't think that people who are accustomed to to privilege in one way or another reflect oh did i get this because i'm a white man who went to private school. No, they don't. So why is the onus on the individual who typically wouldn't be there to question themselves? Um, and it's a natural inclination, one I've been in myself as well, sometimes if I'm speaking with very senior people in you know, organizations that do not see people like me often. And then I have to reflect on actually, just as, as, as both of you said, there's an, a lived experience, which is of value. Um, so yeah. Yeah, so um, just kind of thinking, reflecting on what you've all said there, um, I'd be quite interested in hearing, like, actually from all of you, but so Priyanka, like, what you were saying there about um, your experience of having gone through these programmes, you also work with diversity coordination now. Um, and it'd be great to kind of have some, hear some thoughts about how your own experiences has, like, um, impacted how you approach that job and just generally what that job entails actually? So I came into the industry not knowing anybody and straight away I noticed that there was in particular areas of film and TV a lack of, so for me I'm British Indian and it's not to say that I come into a room and I want to see other British Indians but it was to, it was to see someone who looked like me or came from similar background or shared a similar experience because they're going to understand where I'm coming from and when I first started in the industry it was one of the things I noticed happened very very rarely and for a long time I struggled with that because it meant that I had ideas and stories that I wanted to share but it they weren't always accepted and it was purely because I you know wasn't in a room with people who'd come from a similar background and the, when the opportunity to be able to work in diversity and inclusion came it was something I was so passionate about because I've learned 
that it, it needs to change across the whole industry, but you have to start very early on. You have to speak to young people, you know, whether that's going into schools or going into universities and actually tell them about the way the industry works and the opportunities that are there because I know it's changing now but actually there's also this perception that for example being in the arts isn't sustainable and it's not true but it's the perception that's been built and I don't know whether it's because you know certain communities have just always had that understanding or because it's not been translated over time and one of the things that I want to do through my role and one of the things that I'm actively doing is being able to reach out to schools and talk to 16 year olds and go, have you thought about a career in film and TV? Because if you genuinely think about it and you want to be in it, actually you can. And there are so many roles. You, know, you don't have to just be a director. Um, and it's one of the things that I want to do because I find that particularly from my own experiences is that I don't want others to feel like they shouldn't belong when they first come in. It should, you should come in and you'd be like, I really want that job. Oh my God, I can see an exec and they look like me and I know that I can get there. And I know that I'm, I'm still unfortunately going through that period where I don't actually see a lot of execs who look like me. But I'm hoping that if we can make small changes that anyone coming in in the next 10 years are not gonna feel the same way because I think it's so sad to hear you know that it's been going on for so long and that people who are genuinely passionate about coming into certain industries have come in felt like they weren't represented and then having to have they decide that this is not for me and just leave even if they absolutely loved it and I think it's unfair for someone to feel like that um I'm fortunate that I've managed to have thick skin and particularly because of my disability I've got a very long medical history and that's kind of I suppose developed me in a certain way where I've been able to take things as they come and go you know what no I'm not giving up I'm gonna keep going but not everyone is like that and I also just yeah ultimately I don't want people to feel like they don't belong in a particular area just because they're not represented enough. And that's what I'm hoping to kind of start out to, to do through my role, which has actually only been seven months, so still early on. Josh, I'd love to bring you in to just kind of comment a bit on some of what Priyanka's saying, because obviously your experience is as a diversity consultant and inclusion officer. So, and you've been doing that for a few years, so it'd be really great to hear from you. Yeah, and particularly that experience of going into spaces as an external voice, um, spaces that aren't really inclusive or accessible to a lot of people. And also, um, Josh, you need to unmute yourself. So sorry. Uh, I, I, I was saying at the start, this is the one constant that I'm not leaving the house. Someone will start talking whilst they're on mute. Um, so yeah, so um, I uh, completely agree with, with what Priyanka just said. Like, I really do think that, you know, if you can see it, then you can be it. And if you see yourself, I think Gina Davis said that, who's from the film industry. Um, and, you know, if you do see yourself reflected 
that means something. And it might not be as it might not be as obvious as, oh, that means I can do it, but it's a clear message that actually there isn't a you know whether it's a stained glass ceiling for people of color glass ceiling for um for women whatever it might it might be there there it it's possible to some degree there might be barriers though particularly when it comes to class and i think sometimes it, it's it, it's really complex in relation to my my role so yeah like first and foremost i'm i'm a trainer and so i go into lots of different spaces and i think I would always advocate for organizations using people who are external in terms of their inclusion work because you will need at some point firstly kind of to give people the space to think about inclusion and what it means to them and their roles i do not think that it is woven into the process of many people's roles in the way that it, that it should or it should be built into kind of um you know performance indicators or just even like oh, ways of management so many people have to really just work it out as they go along and uh and so i think it gives people the space to do that and so a big part of it is kind of providing that space but also, I think as an external person, you are able to, to some degree, hold the mirror up and, you know, speak truth to power in a way in which where there are clear power dynamics, people may not feel able to or provide the environment where people are able to share their own experiences. Um, and so, yeah, like I do think that like over the last year, for example, there's been a huge upswing in people doing work on anti-racism and I've with, with lots of organizations on that. And I think there has to be a real understanding of this being, like the fact that I think sometimes people want to get to the end. <laughs> and I don't mean like end end of the course, um, but I mean like, what's the end goal here? How do we, how do we solve it? <laughs> And I think there has to be a, an understanding that actually any kind of training or, or consultancy has to feed in and be really the catalyst to continue conversations in your own way of working. Um, I personally think that that training um, and, and, and learning works best when we are breaking people up into different groups um, and, and giving people, uh, like I suppose, time away from those who do hold the power in their own teams and, and, and organizations that's something i've seen consistently um but for me personally as a mixed race working class uh gay guy who actually i started my my my, my work in this sector um at stonewall the lgbt charity and i work with organizations there on how to create an inclusive environment for lgbtq staff and what i found is really Authentic leadership means in whatever sector that you are engaged in the issues. Um, and it doesn't matter whether that's film, whether that's manufacturing, whether that's law, um, that authentic leadership is built on a few things. And I think curiosity is one, authenticity is another, and the idea that actually you're going to get things wrong. And if you aren't getting things wrong, then clearly you are being passive uh, you know and in many cases complicit um and that we yeah and that we have to be proactive um you asked me a little bit about quote going into spaces that aren't as inclusive and how that is and i think that sometimes i really do think like 
I always think, let the room talk. <laughs> so if someone's particularly disruptive, has something to say, then I actually think sometimes the room will moderate in itself. Uh, that doesn't always work. <laughs> sometimes an environment is actually really directly hostile. And I think sometimes that's when you have to say, you really have to kind of hold the mirror up and say, this feels hostile. Can somebody articulate what the point of tension is? And then just keep asking questions. And sometimes you're not going to like the answer. And yet, through, I think sometimes the simplest questions, and where did you hear that? Um, can really, and, and, what, and what do you think the impact on that individual is? I think sometimes that's the breakthrough that people need. It's, it's humanizing people and it's, and it's questioning some of those prejudices that people just take for granted. Um, so yeah, that's, um, that, that's a little bit about the, the way in which I work. Yes. One last thing. Sorry, yeah. one last thing. <laughs> I would always say, just just generally, I think with, with going into organisations, uh, if you are, if you're not consciously being trying to be uh, inclusive in one way, then chances are you are unconsciously excluding people. Um, and so I think sometimes, often people are excluded because actually they're an afterthought because they're not visible. So if there is a, a silence in the room, question why that's there. Because I spend a lot of time speaking to all white audiences anyway. And I think that in itself is the silence in the room that needs to be spoken about. Thank you. Um, Tarek, I'm going to ask you a little bit about space in a second, but I just wondered if there was anything you want to add to what Priyanka and Josh have just said? Um, no, actually, I, th I, I think I'm ready for the question. Okay, um, well, great. Um, so, yeah, we'd love to hear a little bit about um, creating spaces like you briefly introduced Burnton Abbey. And, um, yeah, it would be really um, great to kind of hear your thoughts on creating spaces. And um, you mentioned, for example, radical exclusion there, um, but also kind of what these spaces can and um, what are the use of such spaces and spaces that can subvert power structures and maybe just a little bit about your practice with Brenton Abbey. Okay, um, well, something that I, I realized recently is that um, a thread that um, runs through all of the work really that I've been doing over the last, how many years now? 18 years, I think, no, let's say 15, um, <laughs> um, uh, is, um, reclaiming spaces for queerdos as i like to put it people who are lgbt but also maybe sit outside of like mainstream lgbt culture i love i i like to uh, I, for me the being a weirdo is a positive thing i'm like yeah I'm total weirdo so so queerdos uh, follows on from that as also being of course a wonderful brilliant thing so creating space for queerdos has been something that i've been doing for a number of years uh, for for a while that was in um uh, my work at the, at the Marlborough, which is, uh, well, it was, is a pub with a theatre above it. And I took over the theatre in 2008, having worked in the pub for a number of years um, um, and decided I didn't have a theatre background, um, but I just had a chancer background, I guess. And I, I had a background in that building and I wanted to make it more um, 
used really um and first of all that was for other weirdos who go to festivals really actually i was kind of thinking about the kind of art that i see at festivals and then that transpired that kind of went further into going actually this space is a, it's a gay bar downstairs as uh, you know that i'd worked mm. in or a lesbian bar actually and actually how can we make the bar and the theater in one one place that works together and that the whole building basically serves the queer community in brighton because actually in brighton normally it's known as being a wonderfully wonderful place for for gay people but actually that's for a small subsection of the gay community and not for the wider community and i over time started to recognize more and more that the more marginalized you were in the lgbt community um you just had nowhere to go so i wanted to make sure that this building that i had some institutional power in um uh that i would make sure that it was um accessible for as wide communities we could make so that made sure that it was accessible to trans community um which meant in part it's, it's one thing just saying like it's accessible we welcome xyz people but it's another thing to to actually make those things real so we had signs we had posters on the wall to let people know that if anything if any if things come up if someone is transphobic you can tell the bar staff of which there was actually majority trans bar staff a number of whom are also trans and also people of color and also have some disabilities so there's this understanding that if some stuff happens at the bar in 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 the space you can let the bar staff know and they'll acknowledge that that happened and also may chuck the person out um for example and that would be okay to do you know when i've been in other lgbt spaces i've had racist stuff happen to me when i brought it to the management they haven't they said, oh, I, I didn't see that happening so uh, i can't really do anything about it um and they would make me the problem rather than the fact you know rather than the person who was being racist so um so that was that was kind of like a bit of time spending working on making sure that a space would be accessible by changing this the who we employed as staff um um, um and the signage that we put on the walls things like that for example um at some point within the, my organi within the organization within the theater i was starting to really started to feel imposter syndrome in my own organization that i'd helped fat found as it started to kind of grow um and i started to do more stuff nationally and um engage with the arts community around the country and i really started to feel like i don't know do i know i don't really know enough about the arts maybe i shouldn't be running this organization that i founded to make space for people you know and i just started to kind of get more and more like i don't know what my what, what my power is here and i then at some point i had a breakdown I, I, my i had a bereavement and a, and a relationship ending at the same time and i just was at my lowest felt so awful and i felt really unable, unable to communicate and connect with people um and i and i and i felt that way at work as well as outside of that and i started to realize though that the moments when i felt good and 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 whole again uh, and like i was being fed some sort of golden light or something was when i spent time with other queer people of color um um which would happen every now and again that might happen in, in the in the venue that i worked in and i realized that i needed to make more space for queer people of color and really sort of it wasn't the space that we had in the in the venue although i could say yeah this is this is, this is our this is our space as much as anybody's i still couldn't prevent a random person from coming along and coming in and, and still trying to touch someone's hair or something we could have that we can tell that person that was wrong or we can get them to leave the building as well but it still doesn't prevent those things from happening in the first place um and so i realized that i wanted to sort of create spaces that um, were exclusive or really sort of flipped the power 
to such a level that um, um, the people who I was seeking to, to center um, felt like gods, which is where Brownton Abbey came from. Um, I, I was at a festival with a few friends and we were um, performing as aliens. I've been doing alien walkabout for a number of years at festivals. It happened that one year, um, all of my aliens were people of color and it felt really different. It, some, there was something actually really quite powerful about being aliens, being these weird creatures, having just, we just read, we're aliens that are like highly eroticized and of our own choosing. Um, uh, we have like big things that come off our heads um, and we choose our own outfits. So it's very much an empowerment, uh, empowering costumes that really stand out um, that felt like they had our own individual character. So there was something that was happening when we were performing as these aliens that had changed our skin colors as well. So you couldn't actually even tell what where we were actually from, from really from. Um, there was something really powerful about um, deciding to call ourselves that year alien gods and to be worshipped for our difference and that kind of triggered something in me that thinking what does it mean um, if you are if difference rather than difference being something that you're that puts you to the edge what happens if difference is in the middle and centered and celebrated what would what would a world look like in, in, in where that was where that was the truth so that kind of led me to turning this little festival moment into a big event which i call brownton abbey um again within the name of brownton abbey there's this idea of a power flip that um that um lords and ladies are black and brown um and that we have we have that we have the power for example um so so yeah that was that led me to creating a, um a cons using afrofuturism it allowed me to imagine this as as a, as a world a whole a whole a universe or, or or another reality alternative reality in which we are when which marginalized people people who are normally seen as too many kinds of weird you're weird because you're black and brown and you're and you're lgbt and you have disabilities you know i was told that i shouldn't expect to have a community because of all those different kinds of all those intersections together was just too unusual but actually to then make um a space that said that there's no such thing as being too weird you can be all of those things and you can also dress as weirdly as you like as well and have weird messy makeup and you can you can you don't have you can not smile at people you can be moody and miserable if you want to you can do whatever it is that makes you empowered so that's that was kind of like the world that we decided that Brown Abbey would would inhabit and that also gave us in a framework when approaching institutions um who wanted to uh, house Brown Abbey that there was a thing of of acknowledging that we were not that if if us as artists or as a collective were being disempowered that was negatively affecting the work and therefore what is the point of programming us if you're actually um doing something that's against the, the reason of the work so there was something that kind of allowed us to hold on to our power to hold on to this alternative reality and take it into the space and go this is the reality that we're taking in with us um and you've booked it in so let's let's keep it um let's make it real so that's quite a long answer i hope that uh that gave uh some some perspective on what brands and is and how it works and where it came from no thank you so much and something that all of you have touched upon, but I think particularly in what you were talking about there, is also something that maybe um, not everyone kind of maybe understands about talking about inclusion and exclusion is that um, 
people, many people sit at the intersections of different forms of oppression or marginalization and how maybe some spaces can maybe on paper be said to be a space for someone, but actually they'll get in there and find that they're being excluded for other reasons or being marginalized in that space. Um, so yeah, I think you've all touched on this in a little way and it would be great to kind of maybe continue that conversation about um, spaces and intersections and kind of how, um, how we need to be really aware of these topics when we talk about this topic of inclusion and exclusion. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think Audrey Lord says there's no such thing as a single issue struggle as we do not lead single issue lives. And I really do think when we are thinking about trying to deconstruct um, structural inequality, generational inequality, um, we've got to approach it with an intersectional lens. You know, I think that if you even just take take um, LGBT or um, yeah, like a liberation here in the in, in in the UK, I think often it followed an assimilation model, um, where actually kind of like almost straight washed in its approach, and you know some of the like clear direction of, of travel was around kind of um, being equal in the eyes of the law in terms of marriage, and what that did was I think it closed out. Um, and continue to marginalise many, many groups. And so uh, that within itself pushed push people to the periphery. And um, I think just in, in my work at, um, at Stonewall, I've developed the first Black Asian Minority Ethnic LGBT um, empowerment programme. And that was really too, because really that was something that came off, off the back of, of, of myself because I felt like there wasn't the space to to have those conversations in relation to who you are as an lgbt person what it means to be a role model because i think sometimes we confuse idol and role model and and perhaps don't see ourselves as as, as that and yet when you get people in a room and talk about someone who's inspired them or allowed them to be themselves and they talk about it and then you ask them and would they know that you would describe them as a role model they would say of course not. I think they'd be shocked. They might feel a bit embarrassed. And then in the same breath, you could say, then how do you know that you're not a role model to someone just by being yourself? And I think that is a, it's, that in itself, I think is something that we need to hear. You know, in the chat, I'm hearing that now by being visible, um, by talking about your experience and identity, that, that holds something that's so, uh, that we cannot underestimate it. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I really, and, and, and even now, I think with, with, with Stonewall Housing, um, I'm, I'm, I've been a trustee there for about two years now, um, and I'm, I'm so grateful to be part of a, of, of a, of a charity that really does focus on, um, think about the intersection of race and sexual orientation, and of course class, um, but, you know, they've got a specific house, housing scheme for trans people, specific housing scheme for people of colour and have done for um, for decades. And I think that's something I'm incredibly proud to be a part of, because when we are not considering what is at the root of this uh, inequality, then it will always be superficial or, um, it, yeah, it will never get to the um, to, to, to the root of, of some of these uh, inequalities are.
thank you. Bianca, do you have any thoughts you would like to? Yeah, it was just, it's going on from kind of what everyone's been saying so far. And I think it's about discussing intersectionality and also going that actually it's not just, there's not just one answer. And it's everyone having those ongoing discussions and creating a space where people feel safe to be able to express their opinions and their experiences and how it's affected them, whatever the industry. And I think once you start a discussion, it's making sure that it's ongoing and you continue to invite others to speak and you know, know that it's not going to be solved overnight. I think sometimes and you know not everyone is going to be like this but I think it's it's going okay for example my experiences in film and tv and so I can give an example from that it's okay okay there's representation it's like okay how can we fix representation something for example class you know you can't class isn't visible and so I think it's when you do to have these discussions it's going actually there are visible and invisible diverse diversity is both invisible and visible and it's kind of making sure that you acknowledge that because I think sometimes and this is just from personal experience sometimes it's having when I've had discussions with people they only talk about the visible differences and it's very hard to explain to them that actually no you've missed out so many things that actually are causing barriers for people to break into this industry and it's recognizing that and I think once you create a space where those discussions can happen naturally you're going to be able to identify the root of the problem or go okay for example recently there was um, a survey research came out about film and I believe it was, actually it was for television where people of color so black and brown people got stuck at mid-level beyond that they couldn't break through and it was like okay that's you've been able to identify that problem now how can we fix it how can we have those discussions to make sure that they can break down the barrier but you know for example class it's like everything is centered around london and sometimes in the industry you're expected to work for free and if you come from a working class background where you can't afford to go to london and work for free for a week how can you break down that barrier and be like okay let's give opportunities to everyone um and I was very fortunate to actually be put in contact with an organization who um, are called Talent Tap, and they kind of are doing that's one of the discussions they're having where they're like, okay, look, diversity isn't just visible, it's invisible. How can we break down barriers for all of these people who are trying to get into various industries and actually give them the opportunity like everyone else? And I think it's really important that you know you keep talking and you meet people and you just I think listening is also very important I think it's listening to others because sometimes when you for example like if we were if we were to hear Josh's perspective on what I'm doing at my current role he's going to have a very different view as to what I can see myself doing because I'm in the scenario and I think when you get those outsider perspectives too, it will really open up your mind and you'll be able to think about things that you hadn't thought about initially. Um, but yeah, I think it's very important to just listen and continue those discussions and ask questions. Because if you don't do those three things, then you end up just being stuck and you'll just go round and round in circles and you're never really going to get anywhere 
which sometimes I find very frustrating with the industry but that's my perspective and that's what I can relate to. I also think there needs to be accountability right so um, yes, definitely and I think that like so uh, it, with regards to the film industry I think it is encouraging that um, BIFA have kind of um, or I don't know if it's BAFTA put it in like what some of the the key points are like the, the key requirements really to be nominated in terms of creating new channels, having representation, which has, I definitely think caused ripples in the industry and I think there's still uh, a way to go. But I think having some accountability is really important because I think we're getting to a place now, generally, where more people will talk about awareness, people know that there's a problem, or we'll be able to look like, just as you said, be able to point to the problem. But then how are we I, either incentivized to make effective change when the people in power are really upholding systems of power that benefit them and their group um and yeah, so how do we incentivize that but also how do we create a sense of accountability when things aren't being done um and i think organizations have to really be bold about that um and 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 really kind of uh, make it a key part of people's people's expectations of, of, of them and, and, and their role because i i completely understand what you mean about that frustration um, and, and I think that does come in when people, you know, know that there's a problem and but aren't motivated to do anything about it or say we don't have the time, we don't have the resource, we don't have the budget. Um, no, exactly. And I think it's if you take a problem and you break it down and you make it into manageable chunks, then you can do bit by bit because no one's saying solve this problem overnight. They're just saying, take accountability, figure out what's the route, what can you do, what are your various options, and then gradually you'll be like, oh, okay, I fixed it. Actually, I figured out what I can do to help this problem, help this person, or like I've solved part of this problem. But actually, you know, that's still a good thing. And I think sometimes people don't recognise that. And it's like, you know, don't think you can solve it overnight. Don't if you don't if you step away from that thought, then the tiniest bit of help is going to be a massive change. Mm. And it's sometimes the big little things, isn't it? Like, I think when we think about structural inequality or institutional racism, I think like, like institutions are made up of people. <laughs> and actually institutions compound individual prejudice. And so what individual responsibility can we take in our day-to-day -day action? Because I think it's easy to look at the big picture and it become overwhelming as an ally or someone who's actually experiencing it. Um, and so, yeah, so how can we affect change in the, in the things that we do and how can we empower others to do the same? Whilst also being aware that not everyone's going to be able to, particularly in activism, not everyone's going to be able to participate in the same way. So with the, um, you know, with the people of colour, LGBT role models there was an understanding when we like you know i think before being a role model was about being visible first and foremost and i said really that's kind of culturally insensitive in many ways and there's an understanding that people either will not be safe to be visible and out in all aspects and facets of their their lives and for that to be the kind of the end goal or where place when people need to get to is really you know it it's not being conscious of people's individual experiences and it also kind of devalues what they can bring to a movement 
people can you know be visible and contribute online whilst being anonymous they can support others in loads of different ways and, and engage in, in a movement just beyond being visible um and so i think we've got to yeah we've got to sometimes check what our um our way of participating is and, and think about being flexible in it i would like to say that sometimes our way of participating might just be surviving um, existence is resistance and that's a, a sentence that is not mine but I have been quoted with it but it's not mine it's someone else's that I can't remember who it belongs to but yeah existence is resistance I do think it comes from social from a disability justice though I believe um, um, and I think there's something um, just yeah that we can you can fight you can fight a fight um, by by just showing up or, or not even showing up, you can stay at home and stay alive and, and, and uh, live to fight another day, write your memoirs or just, you know, have shared a nice moment, shared a moment with someone or, you know, at one, there isn't, there is there's so many different ways in which to, in which to do the work um, and they're all valid and actually they're all really important actually coming from all the different, all the different angles. Um, yeah. Exactly. There's no right or wrong answer. It's just you've got to be if you find a way of making a change is being comfortable and just taking that step and doing it you know no one said that you have to do it this way yeah so many important points there um yes um kind of thinking about um these questions of role models and um, expectations and um, accountability. Um, I'd like to move the conversation on to tokenism. Um, yeah, so tokenism is also kind of a big theme in this, like um, where, you know, maybe like it's used for organizations to maybe prevent themselves being accountable or, um, yeah. And I actually have a quote here from that actually Tarek um, from your article for the British Council on um, like how to avoid tokenism is a really nice definition. I can read it out, but maybe you would also prefer to say something about it. I did that presentation years ago, so it's not all to <laughs> put my mind. So yes, do you please read it out? Cause it's not, it's not the first thing to come out of my mouth. Um, so tokenism, broadly speaking, is including a small number of underrepresented groups in an effort to appear diverse. These people are often symbolically and interchangeably used to represent an entire group of people. Um, and I think that's a really great definition of what tokenism is. And um, it would be great to kind of speak about, um, like, speak about how tokenism can affect people and um, what that does and these questions about inclusion and exclusion. My first thought is about how, um, well, thinking about inclusion and tokenism, when inclusion is done tokenistically, so when it's, a, it's an add-on, a last minute thought, like, oh, we forgot to bring X number of people, or or we we, we remembered to get black speakers, but we forgot to um, make this um, accessible to a black audience, for example, um, for which could be a number of reasons, but might might make something inaccessible. Um, so 
yeah there's many ways in which tokenism can show up and, and um and um it can be quite discombobulating actually as well like am i here am i is this is this a tokenistic um act one of the things actually um i think also the fear of tokenism i think can also stop people from doing things at times like you don't want to do something tokenistic and so you just do nothing um what i say to people around that is like you you're well, the way that you can demonstrate that it's not tokenistic is by continuing to do the work. Like, yeah, if you just do something one time and then you forgot you, and then you forgot about it the next time, then that, that's that's fine. Sometimes, yeah, you might have forgotten to to invite a certain audience, for example, but you actually generally do want that audience to be there, and it's coming from a good place, and you do want to keep making that change. So, yes, it might be that you bring some people in last minute, but in order to in order for you at least in your own self to to know whether you've done something tokenistically or not is um, to continue to to make those changes, to learn, to develop, to and to act differently, I guess, in the future as well. And I think I, I kind of agree that I think that sometimes tokenism can be, it can act as, oh, we don't, well, we don't want to be tokenistic. It's like, okay, so just carry on being homogenous and have no representation whatsoever. Like, I think sometimes it's like the not wanting to be tokenistic can actually act as a barrier. I think it's about getting people there, but not just getting people there. It's actually about kind of giving up some of the power because realistically, I think sometimes it can be, okay, I'm in lots of spaces. I'm maybe one of, you know, a handful of, uh, you know, I'm definitely in the minority. Um, but then me being in the minority in a space isn't what makes it tokenistic or me being asked to be there so there's some representation isn't what makes it tokenistic. Me being disempowered in the space is 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 what makes it tokenistic me sharing an opinion and it being laughed off is 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 tokenistic me being expected to be the entire voice for the group which i represent is being tokenistic not just me being there it's about how how i'm made to feel or whether i'm my experience is is truly valued in that space and i think you're right though Tag, i think that actually something can be um it's it's about the effort you put in after the fact i think it is about that consistency you know people talk like like it's lgbt history month right now you know some like and, and i think you know and we exist 24 7 365 so you know i think sometimes like one or like once pride's over that uh, or black history month those things it's about a consistency um and a continued engagement um throughout that 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 makes that one act that you did not tokenist no i agree both of your points actually and i want to go on to what Tarek was saying that actually sometimes tokenism can prevent you from doing certain things and this is going back to what i was saying earlier about um organizations or opportunities that are there to help people from underrepresented backgrounds to break into industries but at the same time it's that thing it's like oh but have they given it to me because i'm a token for them and i'm making them look good because they happen to have done all these things and very early on i used to feel very hesitant to apply to certain things because of the tokenism because i was like i don't want to be hired because i happen to tick boxes for them i want to be hired because i'm me and I think it's once you kind of break down that wall and you actually think about kind of the discussions behind it, it does become easier. But I, it is interesting what you said, um, 
that Joshua was saying that actually about the point where you're expected to answer for everyone who looks like you because I think particularly when it comes to diversity and inclusion it can happen so easily and I, I think sometimes people do it unknowingly mm-hmm. because they just they don't realize that you know you don't represent everyone and that actually it's also that and I don't know how you both or how all of you feel about the term BAME but for me personally I kind of sometimes struggle with that because that kind of puts you all into one group and actually no there are so many different communities and so many different voices within that phrase that actually you're like we don't represent everybody I just represent me I've got things to say about BAME. I don't know. I only ever use it when applying for money, basically. And I think I think that's a lot, that's like a lot of people's experiences. Really, that's that's not our language. That's no. language by that is from some funding body or some uh, institutional power that we have to use in order for them. Normally, I try and um, actually I do sometimes, even actually now in applications, I try and avoid using BAME as well and put in POC because that is more of I mean, there's, there's no language i think that can that can truly articulate the the diversity of experience um but i think at least i know that poc does come from people of color it does actually come from black and brown people uh, he's black and brown as well a lot more recently yes exactly i think it's uh, i was having a discussion with somebody and they that's exactly what they said it's just just be comfortable in saying what someone is if they're happy with that just say it I think it's when you group people together it becomes so tricky and it can Mm. you don't realize actually that the impact it has on other people but yes I know the term is I find it difficult with terminology when you try and group people together I personally find that sometimes it can be wrong Mm. and I do oh sorry was I interrupting then no no I finished (laughs) I also think it can kind of be erasive as well. You know, a lot of organisations are like, well, look, we're 10% um, BAME. And when you drill down, it's like, okay, there's, there's, you know, there's no black people up from like middle management. So really what we're talking about here is anti-blackness. And, you know, I think BAME is not kind of giving, uh, providing the space to kind of talk about that. Or actually certain, like, it can just be erasive of the individual challenges that, 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 we're facing like deliberately vague term that um, yeah doesn't have ownership from those that, that, um, that it's describing. So if I've used it, I think I used it in terms of the Black Asian Minority Ethnic LGBT group. That was about five years ago, and I think it showed how far the language has come since then. But it's still being kind of it, it's it's ever changing. I'm hearing more marginalised groups, racialised groups, those who have experienced racial discrimination. Um, that, and I think sometimes that's another thing as well. You, there's always going to be some wiggle room. There's always going to be someone who doesn't see themselves reflected in a term and actually that's okay. There isn't going to be homogeneity in terms of, which is frustrating for an employer or frustrating for a group because I think like this, this kind of inclusion, but I think we've got to kind of be aware that with something as complex as identity there's going to be a multitude of ways in which people will describe themselves and that that in itself but for an individual changes you know <laughs> it so yeah the, there's something i think also about thinking about why we're using terms that to help to decide what term to use 
which is why I think um, what you were saying, Josh, the thing about um, people who've experienced racism is a reason why you might group brown people together, black and brown people together, because there's a commonality. Um, but then also I know that some people who whose skin color is neither black or brown, but definitely experience racism from some other Asian countries, for example, who definitely are like, wait, but, you know, so there's, yeah, there's that, there's things that they're never being the perfect answer. We have a group in Brighton that actually also has the word BAME in it. It was set up a few years ago, and then every now and again there's a conversation of we need to change the name, but no one can agree on a name to change it to, and so the name's never been changed. <laughs> Just every now and again, people are upset about it, and then it goes round in very circular ways. Of some people are not liking the term people of colour because some pe for some people that reminds them of coloured being a thing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Oh, sorry, Josh. Did you have something to say there? No, 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 I, I was just going to say I agree with that and I, I think it is sometimes in, in, in of itself, having language, I think it's about being flexible and not sometimes because that in itself can eat up into precious organising, like, time, particularly around, around that person. Language is so important, but there has to at some point be an, an, an acceptance that, you know, being part of a group, what we are trying to achieve is work against a common struggle or to uplift people with a, co a common identity and how people define that identity will be informed by their own cultural environment and their own experience. Yeah, so actually talking about language and kind of what terms include who or end all this, maybe this is um, a good uh, place to kind of maybe jump back to um, something that Tarek uh, mentioned at the start where his perhaps is, um, isn't just about inclusivity but at points radical exclusivity. Um, and I think that's something that we really want to talk about as well, like what, um, why maybe exclusive spaces are actually really important as well. Um, so I know maybe Tarek, do you want to kind of kick off and talk a bit about your um this practice this side of your practice yeah i first started to note to realize i mentioned it a little bit earlier but there's some i've had a few experiences when i've realized like how the importance of exclusive spaces um because um i there's been time for example i've been i've been when i'm out with with four with with only black and brown people for example a group of black and brown people and we go out into the public i feel very much like people want to get involved in a way that I find just too much when there's a group of four or five white people being together it's not like there's pressure that people want it like I've been in a club for example with me and, and four uh, friends of color and just felt kind of harassed by people who want to dance with us because they feel like oh my god this is a moment or this like black awesome moment that's happening and suddenly there's a lot of white queers feeling that they have uh, access to uh, to to us and they're annoyed if I don't if I don't want to dance with every single person who is inserting themselves into a into a circle but a group of four white women for example I think quite happily be like this is our we're having a moment this is our this is our time you know like you can be exclusive and just exclusive spaces just happen I think more naturally if you're part of a, of a, of a majority basically so in order for, for minorities to have times when we can have just moments to ourselves where we can either discuss things ourselves or just have just moments with with, with with our friends that we don't feel um like 
there's this I think there's almost this expectation that we don't have the the right to have ex- exclusive times just to ourselves if you're from a minority whereas if you're from a majority it, because it's just what happens it's fine but when minority so so and there's a lot of benefit i think out of having um seeing your you know having exclusive time uh or exclusive spaces um you get a reflection of yourself perhaps or you get to kind of go maybe deeper into conversations that you might not otherwise be able to have you haven't got to apologize to oversensitive white people for example or oversensitive straight people or oversensitive um able-bodied people who who can't um sit back for a moment um so so yeah i've been kind of making um radically exclusive spaces for a little while alongside radically inclusive spaces or like i kind of see them both as part of the work that i like to do and it's always really a positive thing you know i bring um folks together i guess there is sometimes there's a question about whether i've been so when i first made radical rhizomes and i was applying for some funding to make this group that was for queer people of color only it's like a social hangout space in brighton and the recognition that the lgbt spaces that we go to are, are not comfortable for us to be in particularly if you want to gather together as a group you might be comfortable as an individual brown person but only if we're with a bunch of white people so there's a recognition that actually if you want to be queer brown people who have some shared experience we need to literally kind of close the door so we can actually have a conversation without it being constantly interrupted um and when i remember applying for funding from that and going to uh, there was a one of the last round of the funding was uh meeting um a panel who held the funds and one of the old white gay men uh asked the question um the way they asked it was also quite frustrating they were like i know i'm gonna get everyone's gonna be crazy at me for asking this question everyone's gonna hate me for asking it but i must ask is is making something exclusive like contrary to what you want to be doing is actually going backwards you know is it actually really racist to be doing that basically by not having white people there is what he was asking me is it reverse racism and um you know, I think there's, so it was frustrating, but I was prepared to explain to him that, is that, that, you know, white people are not experiencing racism. It's not reverse racism. We need to have spaces. It's for, pe- for people who are like, who are, who are pushed out of society, the ones who, who, who it makes sense to have exclusive spaces. It doesn't really make sense for someone, I don't think, for white, for people to make exclusively white spaces, for example, and kind of put it into their constitution. For example, and say this is this is how it is. Um, that would be, I think, that would be wrong. Uh, and I think because of the question as to why they would be making that space, why would you want to exclude um, black and brown people from 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 a space um, if you're not actually subject to discrimination on on account of your whiteness? Um, except that if you're trying to actually kind of like um, continue white supremacy, which I that's a bit of a rambly answer. I don't think so, personally. I just saw in the, in the, like, I think that there is always that kind of, I think what it is, is it's a challenge to some kind of privilege. Like, ah, a space that's not for me. I don't like this feeling. And it's, um, and I think it's a feeling that people don't often experiences as regularly as perhaps people are marginalized and that in itself is inherently challenging um and it manifests itself in lots of different ways um and people probably won't reflect on the many other places that have been exclusive for, for black and brown people that they just haven't brought. i just saw a question and decided i don't know if we're 
about the Black Asian Minority Ethnic. I don't know if you want me to talk about that now or later. Um, Maybe I think if we just carry on with where we're going on on this, and then oh. we'll bring that up um, just at the end with a few other questions. Can I really quickly just reflect on what you said, Josh, about this thing about this the, the, about um, this idea being challenging of a space a space that's not for me. So with Brownton Abbey, I wanted that's my radically inclusive space that that absolutely centres queer, black, and brown disabled people and welcomes white people into a space, but makes it very clear that, that you know it's, there's no white people on the stage. Actually, there was a moment actually one of our performances we had Big Frida um, she, uh, and the dancer was bringing up um, black and brown people from the audience up into the stage to dance and be part of some human um uh booty shaking performance thing off the stage it was really really wonderful and it was very interesting being in the brighton dome in this big concert hall venue where black and brown people were being exclusively pulled up on the stage there was no white people up on that stage in the moment and they were and in fact for, for none for no part of the evening and you know that's so for me there's an invitation actually to the way that i understood it as, as, as in my for my creation of this art of this world and the artwork the the power of art that you can do this uh, kind of thing is that for me i felt that offering a space and where where white people were not the default where they're actively not being centered actively actively being decentered perhaps even or actually not even actively because i'm like we're not even focusing on you we're actively not focusing on you um that that in itself was a gift to experience what it is like to be on the margins for just a moment you know if you if that if it's so uncomfortable it's obviously not enough of an experience for you so there was a, this idea that um being uh for people who are used to being in the center being decentered is a gift in itself and they can be grateful for it that's a, that's how i like to to think about it or to look at it mm. yeah No, I agree with what both of you guys have been talking about. And I think exclusive spaces are so important because it it's giving you a space to just talk about your experiences and voice your opinions without feeling judged or being dismissed. And it's you know getting others to take into consideration what you've been through. And it's just being able to have that freedom to be able to say something without thinking to yourself, am I going to offend somebody or should I say this when you, you know, you just want to share something. And I think it's really important to have those spaces where you can just say what's on your mind, but then also be mm -hmm. part of inclusive spaces. I think it's the, getting the balance, right? I think it's being able to find the balance of the two and then being able to share. Mm. And over the summer, I did a lot of listening and learning sessions around anti-racism, and that's really but ahead of a training where we would really do like focus groups with people talking about their own experiences of, you know, racial inequity in an organisation. And we would always have a space that was specifically those who had experienced racism, and 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 and, and sessions for those who, who who wouldn't. And that a big part of that is whether we want to or not, as people of colour, more often than not, when we're describing experiences of racism, we are still to some degree trying to protect white feelings and i think that is um it's a learned behavior in you know being a minority i think it's about um thinking about protecting yourself whether it's your own relationship with an individual how you're perceived um i think it's about creating a comfortable environment <laughs> you know actually not wanting to actively make somebody feel uncomfortable and so in doing so you're not speaking your truth 
Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons as well. Like, you know, people might say, just say it, but you know, I can take it. <laughs> um, but actually it's about it, whether you want to or not, you, it's not, I wouldn't describe it as code switching, but it's, you know, you're behaving in a way that's different, that is, that, that's, that really prioritizes comfort and, and to some degree, um, harmony, even if that's not how you want to feel in that moment, it, that the environment almost commands it. Um, and that's quite a difficult thing to articulate to people sometimes, but I think it is a really important thing, thing to, to reflect on. Yeah, no, definitely agree with that. It's really important. Okay, so um, we have one final uh, point that we'd like to bring up, but I think it's also maybe time that we start bringing in some questions as well. Um, our final talking point was to actually talk about how do we build better practices? And I think there's already been a little, um, I think we've already heard a lot about how to actually create better practices in terms of this topic. Um, but I actually want to actually bring in a question now. So, um, Aminder, do you want to ask a question yourself or would you like me to read it? I'm happy to ask. Um, it was going back to when uh, we were speaking about tokenism. Um, and so my question is, how would you advise someone who has been who is aware that they're being used uh, or tokenized and being actively disempowered in a space um, and not used as active participants, how would you advise them from to take the situation forward? How, if that makes sense, it's a really difficult way of, of um, trying to frame it. It's I think it's a really difficult question. That's the thing. So it's even hard to articulate as a, um, as a, as a, as a question. My honest opinion is sometimes I think about trying to create a great sense of um, awareness. And, and I think sometimes if you articulate how you feel, <laughs> it's quite hard for someone to argue with how you feel. You can say I'm being tokenized. They can say I'm not. You can say I feel tokenized and I really want to explain why. And hopefully people are in a space to actually listen. I think sometimes that's not always the case, but in some cases it, it, it is. But I think there is a sometimes that when this is happening and I'm the only one here, it makes me feel like I'm here as visibility, but not really what's what I'm, what, what I'm, what is being said is not being heard. And I think sometimes just actually asking, Am I, am I being heard in this space? Because I do not feel heard. And I've done that in certain situations. And I think sometimes like, what is the motive of me being here? And actually try and ask that to, to, to the room. If you aren't able to do that, because that's there's a lot of assumptions there. Assumption you have the space to talk, uh, the, the power dynamics, right? I think seek solidarity. And I think that is why it's so important you know, in these situations to try and uh, get, uh, have a shared understanding of other people who are experiencing it. But also like, I'm a, I think I'm, a, maybe there's a realist in me as well that always thinks like, in some ways, like sometimes people take steps, step away. If you know you're being tokenized, what can you do to effectively, um, 
like either challenge the ways of working, but also ensure that actually you are not um, being exploited in some way. What can you actually do to either shift this, shift it or actually lean into something so that actually it's beneficial to you, whether that's in terms of money, in terms of um, like, and I think that that's something that we aren't talk, we don't talk about enough. It's like, uh, and, and, I, and I think we, like, Brangie um, talked about it, stepping back from situations because you're fearful of being, and actually what that does is it it means that you don't get that opportunity. Um, so I think sometimes the fear of being tokenized can act as a, as a barrier. Um, so I'm not saying be gladly tokenized, but ensure that actually you aren't being exploited while that's happening. You know, make sure that you are being paid for your time, that your time is being valued monetarily, even if it isn't in the room because I've been in situations like that. Um, so the realist in me is like, ensure that actually your time is valued, even if your voice isn't. Um, and that's, I don't know if that's controversial to say, but um, ideally I think it's about really trying to challenge the system that you're in and ensure that actually what you're saying is valued beyond just being there. Yeah, I think that's actually really helpful because a lot of the time people expect if you're a minority to do things for free. Um, so yeah, um, actively stating that you should be paid for your time is a good way to get there slowly. Um, but yeah, it depends if you have that space as well um, to speak. And also a lot of disabled people um, are, are quite isolated and solidarity can be quite difficult to find. Um, yeah, so it, it's a tricky area. <laughs> it really is. Um, I was just going to, I don't know if you, in terms of just a community, I don't know if you, um, Sabah Chowdhury's um, work on and kind of really bringing people together um particularly um lgbt people of color and i don't know if that's personally oh yes pansexual relevant to yourself but they, they did they've been doing some really interesting things on on um on uh, like community hubs online during the the pandemic um and yeah, they, they, particularly around mental health and challenges around that and, and building those networks, which I think are so critical when we can't be in these physical spaces of which, you know, as queer people, we, like, I'm, it's, I'm, I feel like I'm aching because, you know, you're separated from your, your chosen family. And so how do you actually find those networks? Um, so I will try and get the link for that. Thank you. I've got some thoughts, unless Priyanka, you've got to want to speak. Um, no, no, you go. Um, so just actually quickly on the solidarity thing, um, I think there's maybe additionally, there's the potential if you can't find a community, you can build a community potentially. Um, so that might just be starting to put it just knowing that your intention even for a place to start off with is that you're actually actively wanting to find other people along x y z lines um and 
put it out to the universe, mention it to your friends, put it on Facebook. If you don't use the social medias, ask some people that you know maybe to use social medias to, to kind of start to build a community perhaps. Um, I, we definitely, we do live in an age where there is, there are, there's always people out there. So they, they do exist. If you've imagined it as likely that people that exist, and if it doesn't, there will be people who also are looking for it. So just a reminder that, um, you can if you can't find people in the immediate it might be possible to to build on that and then the other thing i was going to say is about dealing with tokenism if you're being actively tokenized in the workspace um is perhaps there's i mean there's something maybe about knowing your power doing what you can to really know to even if other people don't acknowledge it do do what kind of like self-confidence building work that you can can do to to reaffirm in yourself that you are even if other people don't recognize what you're bringing to it organization or a space or a community or whatever um knowing inherently in yourself that you do have that you that your perspective is worthy is is valid is valued or sh and sh or, or should be and if it's not there's there's also the option of gently perhaps you can call things out without even necessarily saying this is what's happening i think there's you know using 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 your, your words cleverly i think there's ways of being able to you know no one wants to be seen to be racist so you can obviously you can you can say obviously you wouldn't want me to be here tokenistically so it's important for example that as the only person of color in this space that you probably want to hear my opinion um, because, you know, obviously I know that no one here would want me to be here tokenistically, for example. So there's, I think that's how I would, that's how I would play it anyway. Um, and that might not work for everybody, but I think there can be sometimes ways of, um, sort of acknowledging, calling, calling people out without calling them out, just kind of like saying like, obviously you don't want to be racist, you, you're not, you're not being racist. So you want to hear what I have to say, for example, um, that might be one way of flipping things around to empower yourself. I love that. <laughs> I learned that I think from having to, from having a quite like, from having parents who maybe, maybe don't allow for things. So always finding ways to, to get my opinion uh, in there, and for them to also not be upset with me. As you were saying, it's that kind of thing. We learn a lot of skills um, as marginalised people how to not rock the boat. Um, but as a result, also probably we also maybe have some, we have such powers in that that we can maybe afford to to rock it a little bit and still and still stay safe because you probably have quite a lot of skills in that area. Mm. I love that as a technique though actually just saying obviously is that yeah I think that's a really brilliant one to come up with. Okay um so we have another question from Louise. Louise would you like to ask it yourself or would you prefer that I asked it? Sure, I can ask. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much. This is such an interesting evening. So my question, and I don't know if this is quite the right way to phrase it, but I'm a British white woman. So really could only be more privileged by being a white man. And I, as I've grown up, I've become more aware of my privilege, particularly after um, the discussions being raised a lot last year through the Black Lives Matter 
um, protests and all the discussions that come from that. So my question is, do any of you guys have any suggestions for how white people like myself can be more inclusive and be more supportive of minorities? Because, oh, I forgot to say I'm also straight. So obviously I can never fully understand minorities point of view but i would love to try to be more inclusive and any suggestions anyone has thank you okay who wants to go first i'll go first um i think it's and this is actually not just for white people. I think this is for everyone. I think it's really important to talk and listen and ask questions. And I think if you're curious about something or you come across a certain situation where you're like, okay, I'm not sure why this has been made, decision has been made or why this action has been taken. If you just talk to people, I think it'll be re it's really important because then you'll be able to hear their perspective and engage in an ongoing discussion with them. And I think for, for me personally, that's very important. I think it's just being able to talk to people. Um, I don't know what the others think, but. For me personally, I think that allyship has to really be about doing well, I think it's about really understanding your own sphere of power um, and, and recognising what your own influence of power is. Like talking amongst, like I think racism is a much of a white person problem much as, 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 a, as a black person problem in the, or a, you know, a brown person problem in that, not that it affects you in the same way, nothing like that, in that it's a problem that you have as a, and it's a problem to do with whiteness. And so I really think unpicking what, whiteness means and how it manifests itself even in the small parts of of the way in which you're working is a really important place to place to start i think there's no allied checklists well i've seen a fair few and i've, I've, I've obviously drafted some too but and i'm sure you will have seen some of those of you looking at anti-racism around active listening you know listening without waiting to talk um and um and, and and I think really doing the, your the, your own learning, not not always relying on people within organisations to do that education, which I think is it has been happening more and more, which is encouraging. And I think that's why it's important to have external people as well sometimes, because what people do is they default to the people who experience racism in their own organisations to educate everyone. Um, but I, I do think it's about setting clear goals. What can you do in your own working environment to actually empower change to motivate others to act as a uh, a mentor or go beyond being a mentor i always think mentors like passing a skill down which is helpful or but what can you do to be a sponsor so can you actually you know if there's someone who's marginalized what can you do to actually open up doors to them that are closed that you didn't that you hadn't considered now are you talking about them and their work pushing them forward to, do, to doing to doing things so i think it's about thinking about the your own environment, and that includes the home life. You know, I think being having your ally badge on at, at work. Are you having the tricky conversations at home? Are we challenging Gran when she's being a bigot? You know, 
because I think sometimes people go home at Christmas and they think, oh, well, oh, I don't want to say anything, don't want to make a scene. Um, but who else is at the, you know, who else is at the table? The children are at the table. And so once again, it's learned that we prioritise civility over accountability. So I always think if you are about it, then we need to be about it in facets of our lives and having those more challenging conversations when it's not comfortable to do so, when you might be perceived as being the, uh, you know, the, the difficult one. But in, in that situation, you have the privilege of being the white difficult one. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I think it's really about the, um, yeah, it's, a, it's about the um, standing in it at all times and really just doing a little bit of a thing about what power do you hold in your own life and what could you do to to, to challenge and to, to be anti-racist yeah no what josh says is absolutely true i think it's you have to be open to learning and also then going okay i've learned this i'm quite privileged in this bit okay how can i use this to help somebody else and you know again that doesn't just mean people of color it means kind of all areas of diversity i think it's i think everyone has to be able to have those discussions to be like okay i'm very fortunate to have this but you know this person is actually oh i can see their struggles but i haven't had that let me see what i can do to help them and then once i think you want to become open to learning more and more those discussions will just naturally happen I think so too. I think a fear of getting things wrong acts as the biggest barrier. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think really creating the, the space to have those conversations um, is one of the one of the most important things that we can do. Um, I just want to clarify something. Um, we were. Um, yeah, I've asked several times if there's been any questions. Uh, we weren't really planning on reading out comments today. Um, we just kind of, we don't really know what is meant to be said, what isn't meant to be said. And I've tried to ask several times what should be said. Um, if you want to say something, please flag this to us. Um, I said we were closing, but that's because I wanted to make sure there was enough time for people to talk. Um, so I just want to, like let people know that if you do want to say something please say something i'm not going to try and actively yeah it's not my interest or anything to exclude anyone's voice um so we just please let me know like at, at the end i'm moderating i'm listening to the conversation not um yeah i I'm, i mean i've been focusing on the conversation because i'm moderating right now but Please, if people want to say something, please go ahead. Please flag that you want to say something. Um, yeah. Hey, so if you have something to say, please say it. The flagellation of the moderator, I don't think is, please, well, I want to hear it. Um, I was going to just uh, jump in and uh, speak on what we were just talking about. Um, so, I would say pass the mic is one thing. Uh, one bit of advice is to, if you've got, if you have any, without, it doesn't have to be a microphone or a megaphone, just whatever institutional power that you have, if you can share that, pass it on, or uh, that's that's one thing. Um, not Don't fall into the savior role. 
because um, that's still keeping yourself in a in a position of power. Um, so um, um, recognizing that it's it's growth by 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 uh, decentering yourself um, and acknowledging um, power that you have. Um, so if you're if you're on the journey of learning about marginalization staying on that journey recognizing that it's a lifelong one there is no end point um and being getting comfortable with that idea um in fact embracing that enjoying that fact and recognizing what what that what gift that is as well you know that's really just saying that you're finding more space in your in your in your heart and your and your mind to have more love and understanding for more people i mean i don't know why anyone would want not want that um surrounding yourself with voices that are not ones that are your own so you can do that in a lot of different ways these days um the internet is a very good one for that um and believe people that's one of my main ones just believe people so when a marginalized person someone who's not from your own experience is, is telling you something believe them a lot of the time people's just experiences are not believed um and it's, kind of either said oh maybe this happened instead or maybe that happened or maybe you didn't understand what actually was really going on so yeah there's a thing of believing believing people is, is a really good place to start mm. as my top tips thank you so much that's really insightful thank you everybody um i'm just wondering if there's any sort of last questions or anything that anyone wants to uh, bring in just before we close because there's about 10 minutes left before we before we end uh, I mean or if not I guess from our from Josh Tarek and Priyanka just any last sort of thoughts from you because it's been really great having you here with us this evening it's been a really insightful conversation and you brought a lot of a lot of key things and I think yeah you're going to push a lot of people's thinking and you, you've definitely pushed ours so it would just be great to hear any last thoughts from you just one comment that maybe I just I just found in the comments is just someone was just saying about the that um, I mentioned earlier the phrase existence is resistance and someone was mentioned that that um, is used often within indigenous communities amongst other people I haven't found actually where who was who said it first I'd, um, but I definitely can see that a lot of marginalized communities have used it definitely in a uh, and according to one of the commenters here as well that has definitely been something that is uh, from indigenous communities as well which of course would make sense so much of the time, actually, Indigenous voices, uh, again, really, I think only just starting to uh, recognise that as being part of um, communities that are, have been sharing wisdom um, and education and whatever, just, you know, the, the knowledge for, for so long and never been given the time and space for that. So, yeah, there's always, there's always more people that I think uh, and groups that we can there's never like an end point i think basically there's always more space to bring more people in there's always people that are being forgotten and that's that i think is for me like a a goal is to think about who's not who's not here and why then why is not why they're not here and what, if, if that's the case what can we do to make a space one that they might want to come to hugely and i think that 
actually we are in an environment now, particularly with, with Indigenous people in terms of BIPOC is being more widely used across in terms of Black, Indigenous, people of colour to kind of talk about and separate the, the experience. And I think that actually Indigenous groups are now more, now more than ever, particularly in the UK as well, bringing their own um, experience um, of activism, marginalisation. And from a gender perspective as well, thinking about those who are two-spirited, I think it really gives us a, a really unique perspective on reflecting on the fact that our understanding of gender is in, in is contextualised by our cultural environment. Um, and so, yeah, and, and the experience of two-spirited, um, so that gender fluidity, but also spirituality, I think is really critical to, to kind of un understanding how we work towards creating um, an environment where actually uh, queer people globally are liberated. Um, and I guess, Priyanka, if you just have any sort of last thoughts or comments. Um, no, I just want to, I don't think I can articulate it better than what Josh and Tariq have just said. And I think, yeah, I think it's important that if once we start those discussions, it's just making sure we keep going. And I think that's really important. And, you know, just because you see one change doesn't mean that it's, all done it's making sure that you have those discussions and you keep doing what you can to make that a little bit of to help that a little bit because it's really really important mm. and eventually we will get there but we also have to understand that you know like Terry said it's a it's lifelong it, you're always going to learn you're always going to grow and once you acknowledge that then it'll be so much easier for you to have those natural discussions with everyone Definitely. And don't get, don't give up when you get things wrong or when things go wrong. Yeah. I think people who have an experience of being marginalised, there can be points of tension. I think if we are pushing towards creating a more inclusive environment, when we get pushed back, that can act as a barrier. Like, why, why do I bother? Why am I doing this? I'm getting mm. this wrong. I'm disengaging. I can't be bothered. And that is probably one of the biggest barriers that mm. people, uh, yeah. you know, they think they'll either double down <laughs> um, or they'll disengage and actually when something like that happens we've got to understand with engaging in subjects like this people can be, be triggered people can have experiences of being already virtually marginalized expecting that and i think that we've we have to factor that into our, our, our activism that people bring with it their experiences of being previously marginalized and so if you experience pushback and and, and points of conflict that isn't that shouldn't act as a as a stop point if anything it needs to motivate us for the next time and um and and, and continue exactly um, because you know it, even if you get something wrong you're gonna learn from it and it's gonna help you with whatever you do next that's also more growth isn't it we can actually because we're saying to other yeah. people we're showing to other people as well like it doesn't matter like yeah we can make mistakes i make mistakes and then we just learn from them and we keep moving forwards. Jo join me on that whole thing. It's all right to not always be perfect. That's part of being a human being. We're not, we're not perfect beings. Um, yeah, I'm really glad that, that, that that's been brought, that idea of forgive yourself um, for, for not being perfect. Very important. 
And as educators, we need to do that as well. I have to always say, like, I'm going to get this wrong and I need to be called out in this space as well. And if I wasn't, then I wouldn't be a very good trainer. And if I'd never been called out, then I've clearly not created an environment where people feel able to do it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I really enjoyed this. So I just, like, just, I really value these spaces. So thank you for kind of creating it. And it's been lovely hearing from, from Opie. And so I, I want to keep in touch afterwards as well. Um, exactly. I've learned so much too. And I think it's, it's, yeah, it's been so helpful. Yeah, me too. Sorry. Yeah, I loved it. I've had a really great time here too. I've had so much time enjoying myself. We're just being quiet for you to come and say that. <laughs> um, no, it's been an absolute pleasure having you all here. Um, so I just really, really want to thank you all for being here. Um, yeah, I want to thank everyone for coming as well. Um, I guess, yeah, there is five minutes for any last thoughts or anything. Um, but um otherwise i guess we're going to call this to close yeah also just one thing to flag is that um so we will probably at the start of next week send out a sort of resource list uh just on like suggested readings um around the topic not going to be an exhaustive list but at least it's a starting point for those of you who want to engage further on the topic so that will probably around monday tuesday we'll send that all out and through the system so um yes and then the recording of this will also go up probably start of next week as well um but yeah that's it from from us yeah um also in terms of being updated about future events for us at alternative fictions we're just at alternative fictions on instagram is probably the best place because we're really bad at social media but that's the one we really bad <laughs> but we're getting better up to date i don't know like um yeah tarik what about uh you if people want to follow what you do um so you can find i'm not great on social media I don't, I don't really say much about what I do. So um, you can find a lot of my work on the well, Marble Productions. So the Marble Productions website, marbleproductions.org.uk. Um, also Branson Abbey, branson-abbey.com. Um, that's, the, I think those would be the best ways to, to find out what I do. Um, I, I, I am on the socials. Maybe at some point I might get better actually promoting what I do. My Instagram is Carnival Catalyst. You're welcome to follow me, but you won't get much for now. But you might in the future. So, you know, it's not going to, probably wouldn't hurt. Carnival Catalyst. Social media is hard, man. <laughs> yeah, I don't really like to always be, to feel, I feel it can be really quite exposing and I quite like to just get on with my life and not worry about, I'm always having to promote the ins and outs of every single thing that I do. Um, Mm. Yeah. And um, I mean, oh, you can follow me. I mean, my you can follow me on LinkedIn, obviously, Josh Willisie. That's probably going to be probably the most professional. I don't really talk about the um, uh, the work that I'm doing each day with different organisations, but I am kind of trying to commit to share more on there. If you follow me on like um, Twitter at Joshy Willisie, that's definitely going to be more. Um, like that's really going to be more pop culture ridiculousness, less really about diversity and inclusion, um, more kind of memes. And, that there is. and and also on Instagram, if you follow me there, that's probably going to be more ridiculousness mm-hmm. in the bath and like ridiculous. Like, so that's that's definitely like less 
um, diversity, inclusion, uh, professionalism. Um, <laughs> nothing like nothing too saucy, by the way. Just um, it's just like um, um, and um, yeah. So that's that's where you can find out a little bit um, more about me. Probably LinkedIn if it's uh, to do with diversity and inclusion um, and, and Twitter. Mine would also be LinkedIn. I'm terrible at social media. I don't think I've been on my Facebook account for many years. Um, but yeah, LinkedIn would be the best thing if you want to find out more about the diversity work I'm doing. But what we'll probably do is with all of that information is in this resource list, we'll just put uh, links to what people have said that they're happy to share with, with everyone. So we'll include all of that so you don't have to worry about writing all of those, those down for now. Great. Well, thank you everyone for joining this evening. And thank you, Josh, Tariq and Priyanka. It's been, it's been really great having you. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, everyone. <laughs> and stay safe. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. Thank Bye. you, everyone.